morning, everyone. Good morning to you uh, at home as well. Glad you could join us in the service today. It's been a good week. Um, a lot of people have said uh, after this week of prayer and fasting, we've never done that before. I'm going, why not? It's time. And uh, one of the good things about this week is that we have been in small group prayer every night for you and for the needs in our congregation and uh, in our community. But we get to meet new people every night and pray with people. It's really a fantastic time to unify our hearts and minds and to come together and just love on one another um, through our prayer time. I'm continuing today in the study of the book of Romans, and we're all the way to chapter 2. <laughs> I know, it's been a while to get there. Uh, and, uh, and it's been a challenging message uh, to try and synthesize what Paul is trying to say to his people in Rome. It's interesting to me because Paul talks very strongly and deeply to people he's never met. He will eventually end up in Rome and meet the very same people who this letter is written to. But at this point, he's, he's it's, it's kind of like sending a, a little promotion of what it's going to be like when he actually comes in person. So, so when they read the letter, they go, ooh, this guy's deep. And, and he's not a, afraid to call a spade a spade. He's, uh, he'll get in our face, and he'll also encourage us. And, and, but he's one of us, right? He's trying to help us understand the full dimensions of what the gospel entails. Maybe you've been following the news recently. I'm not going to talk about Ottawa just yet. I'll just talk about London first. Uh, England's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is currently fighting uh, Partygate. I don't know if you've been following the news. I, I watch what's going on the world, around the world just in case uh, there's good stories to tell. And uh, the accusations of Mr. Johnson is that while he's imposing strong restrictions on his nation uh, because of COVID, he is having parties behind people's backs. And um, he's got, of course, amazing explanations for how he didn't break the rules while he was breaking the rules. Uh, and uh, one of the parties happened by accident. His wife threw him a, threw him a, a surprise birthday party in the office. Uh, he, you know, how do you, how do you not you know, have a cake when it's put there on the table for you with all the people around it? Uh, he has had a, a gathering in the courtyard of 10 Downing Street as well with people that aren't in his bubble. But all of these, of course, were not breaking the rules, even though no one else is supposed to meet with gatherings. And the, the opposition is saying it smells of hypocrisy, uh, how he's making rules for other people but not following them himself. So there's people who are follow the rules and others that are saying, yeah, follow the rules except for me. And, and essentially, this is kind of what Paul is talking about in Romans 2. He's, he's dealing with two issues that the church has faced today, and two issues that probably are right at the top of why people don't want to go to church or don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. And these are legalism, having to follow all the rules, and the other one is hypocrisy. And uh, those two things are, are dogging the church today as, it, as they have for centuries. So before I get into Romans chapter 2, I have to do a little historical background for you, just in case you don't know this. But uh, when God brought his people out of Egypt uh, as slaves, this great big massive horde of people, uh, an unruly mob, basically, uh, were camping around 
the, the, Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula, and then God had them stop long enough for Moses to go up in the mountain uh, and uh, get, get the laws, the Ten Commandments, kind of an instruction book on how to become a people, a nation. They didn't have any rules. They didn't have any laws. They didn't have any courts. They didn't have any police. There was no guidelines on what they were supposed to be like. So God helped Moses. He dictated to Moses all of the rules of conduct, how to treat your neighbor, how to uh, worship properly, how to build a tabernacle, how to care for your animals, how to treat outsiders, basically how to get along with people and with God. And these were the rules they were to follow. This is, you know, he, so he had, uh, here's all the rules, here's what happens when you break the rules, here's the penalties, on and on and on, to try and make them into a respectable people, a nation that other nations would take seriously. Otherwise, they're just a mob. And so he was trying to, to give them some boundaries. You know, here's, here's kind of what I want you to look like, and here's how we can all get along. Well, after they, pro- they settled into the promised land, they started building their towns and their cities, and um, they liked the pagan gods around a little bit better than the god of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they started worshiping idols. And they, they were bowing down and giving sacrifices, even their own children, to pagan gods. And, and, and God finally says, enough, enough. You haven't listened to my prophets. You haven't followed the laws, you haven't worshipped me alone like I asked. We had an agreement. We had a covenant, the first testament covenant, and you've broken it over and over and over again. So the, my patience is up. And he allowed the nation of Babylon, the Babylonians, to come in and overrun his people. And he, he, they emptied the towns and the cities, took God's people away as slaves, not slaves, but as... as uh, they're in exile for some 70 years. Then they started crying out to God and realizing how badly they messed up. And they didn't want this to ever happen again. So when God allowed them to come back, well, just to say, all these rules and laws that you can find in, in the Pentateuch, uh, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then the rebuilding of the walls and setting up worship again, you can find in Ezra and Nehemiah. And they decided that, you know, we've got to start following the rules, we got to start following the laws. And so they dusted off the laws. They dusted off the temple. They got everything cleaned up and fixed. And all of a sudden, for the next 400 years, more and more and more and more rules were put in place. Because if you follow the rules, you won't have to go into exile again. You won't be overrun by all these nations. So they had all these rules to follow. And they started worshiping the rules instead of God. The rules became all important. All the religious leaders would judge people according to how well they were following the rules and all the laws that they'd set up. Not just God's laws, but the ones that the religious people set up too. So essentially, no normal person could actually follow all of the rules. It was impossible. Essentially, they were worshiping a book of rules instead of Following the greatest commandments, the two most important commands in all of the scriptures are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. They weren't doing any of these because rules were more important than people. They were more important than God. And so their dependency on following the rules was outshining their love for God. And this is what Paul is starting to address in chapter 2 of Romans because the legalists were there already in the churches and the hypocrites were right there beside them. So in chapter 2, Romans, verse 1, you can read along with me on the screen or in your Bibles. It says, therefore, 
You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice these things. He's saying, you're judging everyone else, but you're breaking the same rules you're condemning others for. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet don't do them yourself, you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume that the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know he will approve whatever is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the, dishonor, in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Paul is addressing essentially two main issues. The first is a strange idea that had crept into the church that all of the Christians needed to essentially become Jews before they could be true Christians. If you want to be a Christian, they were saying, you have to follow all the laws of the Old Testament. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. It's not about the laws. It's not about the rules. The second thing he was dealing with is judging others for breaking religious rules when they didn't follow the rules themselves. That's the hypocrisy. Timeless and real problems in the church today. And I, I've encountered this from different people that are outside of the church, and they point fingers at those people, the hypocrites in the church, and going, well... Join the club, you know. Yeah. How about I point out a few things in your life as well, because we're all in the same boat. Legalism, Paul addresses it also in Galatians chapter 2. You know that a person is not justified by works of the law, right? But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He's saying, stop trying to impress God by following all the rules. It's not working, and it will never work. You can't be good enough for heaven. You can't work hard enough to get into heaven. You're not going to check off all the boxes for God and say, yep, he, oh, yeah, yep, oh, he, look at all this good stuff he's done. Uh, we'll let him in. That's not how it works in heaven. We are acceptable to God by putting our faith in his one and only son, Jesus Christ, not by how good we've been. Galatians 3.23 goes on, 
Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. He's saying the law had a purpose. God put the law in place because they needed some guidelines and needed some boundaries, and it was, it was like a placeholder until Jesus came. And then, you know, we don't need the ceremonial laws anymore because we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Put your faith in him, and you're good to go. The, the rules, the, all the good works, that, that follows after salvation. It's not how you obtain salvation. You think you've done enough good works over your lifetime to earn a place in heaven? Well, you, you can't, because no one can. We just keep trying and failing, trying and failing. That's kind of the essence of hypocrisy, is that we're trying to present ourselves as wonderful, perfect, got our act together, while on the inside, we're, we're all messed up. We've got fears and anxieties. We have uh, scars. We have skeletons in the closet that we don't want anybody to know about. It's easier to try and point out everyone else's faults and ignore our own. That's legalism, following all the rules, is a sham. It never works. But Christians, they default to legalism. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, don't go to movies, don't wear makeup, don't wear pants if you're a woman. All these don't, don't, don't. I had someone come to my last church. Saw, uh, they were just coming inside the entrance. They saw a woman wearing a wearing pants, and they said, that's an abomination to the Lord. I said, she doesn't want to be a Jew. <laughs> she doesn't have to follow the Jewish commands. She's a Gentile. What are you thinking? You gotta, to be a good Christian, you've got to follow all the Old Testament laws? Well, that's the mindset they had. It doesn't work. It never worked. And Paul's just saying, get over it. Move on. Let, the, let it go. And that's the hard part, because it's easier to, to follow rules than to have a relationship with God sometimes. It's easier just to check boxes off to say, oh, yep, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, and never once even talk to God. He might want to say, you know, there's some stuff in your life I want to deal with. No, I followed all the rules. I'm good to go. No, there's some pride in your life we need to deal with. No, there's some judgmental attitudes in your life we need to deal with. I have some distant relatives who were pillars of their little country church. But the men and their family had long histories of spousal abuse. Hypocrites. You see, we might look good on the outside, but on the inside, there's trouble. Robert Murray McShane, famous evangelist to natives in America, said, it's the mark of a hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere but home. Wes Fessler, American athlete and coach, he says, hypocrisy is the audacity to preach integrity from a den of corruption. Essentially, do as I say, not as I do. So I'm not actually talking against hypocrites today. I'm actually saying, you know, there's stuff we, every one of us, need to deal with. Marion Wright Edelman was a lifelong activist for children's rights, and she said, what's wrong with our children? Well, adults telling children to be honest while lying and cheating. Adults telling children to not be violent while marketing and glorifying violence. I believe that adult hypocrisy is the biggest problem children face in America. Wow. <laughs> well, we see it all the time, hypocrisy. But it's, yeah, I, I read somewhere, and actually several different places in my research that said, um, hypocrisy is a virtue. <laughs> it's, like, it's something that everyone aspires to. 
to try and look good. What politicians? I don't want to blame all politicians, but there's just a lot when they're doing their stump speeches. They want to say all the amazing things they're going to do, but then we actually check to see how many actually they, they do. It's like, eh, I got elected. I'm good to go. I got through that. Now I got to make another great speech in three years when the election time comes up again. Please understand that Christian life is not about being perfect or following a list of ceremonial religious rules at all. God does not ask us to check off a list of things in order to be acceptable to him. He just wants us to love him and to act like we love him. So there's this incident in the New Testament that is puzzling to a lot of people, and it's when Christ is on the cross, and there's a uh, murderers and thieves beside him. There's three guys hanging on crosses. Christ is in the middle. And one of them starts to mock Jesus and say, hey, if you're, if you're, so, if you're so big and, and amazing, why don't you get off the cross and save yourself? And the other one's going, shut up. <laughs> he hasn't done anything to deserve to be on the cross. He's not like us. And Jesus turns and says, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. And people are scratching their head going, what? He never went to church. He didn't have morning devotionals. He didn't work with fifth grade boys in Sunday school. He didn't go on mission trips. He doesn't know theology. He's probably never ever sang a praise chorus in his life. Yet today, Jesus says, you're acceptable and I'll see you in heaven in a few minutes. He didn't follow any rules. He didn't even look good on the... He, in fact, he was a bona fide thief. That's why he was there. Yet Jesus could turn to him and say, you're good to go because you just put your faith in me. You just showed, you believed in me and who I was. Is that all it takes? Is that like, it seems a little too easy. But it kind of puts legalism in its place. If you realize that all of those rules and laws that we were told you had to obey in order to be saved or in order to be a good Christian, um, no, they don't really count. I will repeat that what you do shows what you believe. Your actions will verify your testimony. That people do need to see you acting what you what you preach, what you say. If you say honesty is good, be honest. Uh, if you say integrity is good, have good integrity. These things represent Christ. So your actions, your behavior, your language, your thought life, everything you do is going to reflect your love for God. But that's not what saves you. It's faith alone in Jesus. So Paul is trying to put everything in perspective. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You can't, you can't insert stuff into the middle of that verse. Whoever would believe in him and do good works or whoever believe in him and, and go on a mission trip, whoever believe in him and, and live the perfect life, you can't add anything into that sentence. It's, it's complete. So Jesus does address hypocrisy as well. In Luke chapter 6, he talks about how can you... Go to your friend and say, hey, let me take that speck out of your eye when you've got a big log in your own eye. Like, get rid of the log in your own eye first. Deal with your own stuff first so you can help others. Matthew 6, 2, he says, when you 
Do your merciful deeds to others. Don't brag about it like the hypocrites do. Matthew 6, 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who do it for show. Matthew 6, 16, and when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who do it for show. He says in Romans 12, we'll talk about this later, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cleave to that which is good. So the freest people, I think, that I have ever met are the ones who have nothing to hide. They're not putting on a show. They're not trying to impress anybody. They are just them. What you see is what you get. That's kind of what we're aiming for. We're not trying to impress everybody. Uh, There's no one actually worthy of trying to impress apart from God. So these honest and open and authentic and genuine people, they're free. They don't have to act anymore. They don't have to put on a face anymore. They don't have to try and impress everyone at the store and at the, the mall and wherever they're at. It's like, no, I'm me, just me. We're all looking for meaning and significance in our life, and we want to feel that our life matters and that it's important. So sometimes we justify judging others to try and make us look even better, like more acceptable to God or more, um, more, <laughs> more worthy of God's love. But in God's eyes, there are only two kinds of people, those who have given their lives to Jesus and those who haven't. So what have you done with yourself? Does yourself belong to Jesus? Who is yourself? I see in this passage kind of three selves. One is a false self. The self we like to create uh, to make sense of the world or to protect our true inner self from being hurt or criticized or dismissed. And Many people never get to know the real us. We, we are projecting a false self, that we've got it all together, that we don't have any worries, that we don't have any concerns, that we don't have emotional scars. We project a self or a version we want people to see. It's a kind of a protective barrier that protects the vulnerable part of us, the authentic and the hurt person inside. Someone says, you know, we project a, a nice, mature uh, adult on the outside, but on the inside, we're a hurting child. In our contemporary individualistic culture, we, we, we want to project our achievements and our social status and our talents and our love relationships. Tim Keller says that in the past, uh, as, as communities, we used to be with uh, in a larger group of relatives, grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles and cousins and all that, all around, and we all had a place, we all had a role to play, we knew where we fit, but now we've kind of jettisoned all that and we're just lone individuals trying to impress somebody else. Have you ever had a chance, have you ever been a boss where you're going to hire somebody and you get a, a load of resumes uh, and they all come in and, and the resumes look like these are superhuman people. I mean, the achievements they've done, the scholarships they've had, the awards they have, the benevolent things they've done, the amazing stuff in the community, then you, you're like, you're, you're, you think you're going to interview an amazing person and then the real person shows up. It's like, no, you, you you can't tell them the real you. You've got to tell them the, 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 the impressive you. I think there's a false self that is kind of protecting us, who we really are. There's also, I'd say, a marketing self, one that we're trying to sell ourselves. That's what the resumes do, selling all the best parts of us and ignoring our hang-ups and our inconsistencies and our frustrations and the, the things that we, we, we don't like to talk about. We market ourselves. We sell a version of ourselves so people will admire us or buy our product or support our cause. We can't show a weakness or a crack in our character or fears or flaws. I knew a man who um, 
who was so, uh, had so much anxiety in social settings that whenever he would go out into a social setting, he always had to have a shot of whiskey first to give him a little bit of liquid courage uh, so he could face people. Like, he was trying to project something happy and social and laughing and loud, but he was actually just kind of on the edge of drunk instead of authentically him. He needed help. That was his marketing self. And then there's, there's the judging self. The, one of the best ways to take the attention off of you is to just point the fingers at someone else. Oh, so glad I'm not like that person. That, you know, can you believe they wore that? You know, anything to not look at you, always judging and criticizing and pointing fingers at others. And that's what the, the, the judging legalistic people like to do, is just point pe- the fingers at other people, distract from who they are. We like to exclude people on the basis of made-up standards. The truth is no one is actually certified to judge other people, unless that's your title, you know, judge advocate, judge in the legal system. They are actually bona fide, trained, and certified to judge, but we're not. You know, and they judge according to the legal system. But we like to judge according to our own standards. It's really harsh, particularly for children, when they have judgmental parents. They can't wait to get out of the house and be free from the ever-watchful eye of that critical parent. Maybe you grew up like that, never getting it right, always being criticized, always having things pointed out that were wrong, never being told you were good enough. But Jesus comes and says, you are good enough. I died for you, and I love you. Don't worry about other people's standards. Worry about my standards. The Jesus comes to the judge and the hypocrite and the marketer, all part of our human condition. And I think we all play these roles from time to time. But this, he comes and he says, I know who you are. I see you on the inside. I know who you're projecting to be, but I, I, I know who you are. I know what you're going through. I know what you need on the inside, and I've come here to help. He says, don't worry about projecting who you think people want you to be. Promote me instead, and I will raise you up. Don't worry about judging everyone else around you according to the standards you can't even keep all the time. That's my job. I will judge them and you according to my standards, he says. He says, stop trying to be someone you're not. Be who you are, flaws and all. And let me be strong through your weaknesses, and then you can truly be free. What we're aiming for, Paul is saying, is we need congruence in our life. We need to be the same person all the time. We need to be humble. We need to be dependent on God. We need to be bringing glory to Him and not worried about everyone else's expectations or what we think they want us to be like. We need to be the same person at home, at work, in the community. But this can ultimately only happen through Jesus Christ in us. That's the Spirit's job, to bring congruence in our life, to bring peace, finally. To just let you breathe without being under the weight of everyone else's expectations. Satan likes us to get stuck in our stuff, in the muck of our life, the stuff in our past that we regret, and he likes to bring it up and say, you're not so special. He likes to remind us of things where we fail and says, yeah, you're, 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 you're a loser. And um, Jesus says, no, you're not. Some people get really stuck emotionally in the past, and they, they, maybe they're traumatized, and their emotional growth just kind of stops at that age, at 12, at 16, whenever it was. They, can't, they react defensively. They react with uh, anger or lashing out at others, emotional manipulation, uh, these kinds of things. It shows that we, we're stuck. We've stopped growing emotionally. We're, we're, we're functioning like uh, childish responses, and I, I see that more often than I care to, to, to mention. 
And, and Jesus comes and he, he gets us unstuck. He helps us deal with those things in our life that we're afraid people might find out or we can't quite get over. He releases you from that. This is the songs we are singing today that he will break those chains. He will set you free to become the person that you are intended to be in him. Christ will bring congruence and alignment in our life, body, soul, and spirit, if we let him. All of who we are submitted to all of who Christ is, letting him live through us, means stepping aside and getting out of the way of he who wants to be worked through us. So he'll help us move on to become spiritually and emotionally healthy when we free our lives up and stop trying to impress others and judge others and just look to him. So why do I need to know this? <laughs> the last verse we read was a kind of a scary verse. It says the Gentiles or outsiders, you know, they revile God because of you. Not you specifically, but generally. He's talking to the church. You're putting on a mask. You're projecting a, a, a form that is untrue. That is not uh, what I want. You're not projecting me. You're projecting rules. You're projecting law, laws and legalism. Says, let it go. People are watching. Your unsaved friends and family are watching. Your kids are watching. Your spouse is watching. They want to see if you truly believe in God or if you're just using it as a crutch or a phase, or a mask, but not something you're all in for. Paul was saying people are turning away from Christ because Christians are too fake. They're hypocritical. They're legalistic. All the kinds of things no one wants anymore. They're not interested in that kind of a life. And he's saying, you're free. You're free. You're free in Christ. Gandhi's famous line, I could turn to Christianity if it were not for Christians unfortunately, still stands. If we could put as much effort into trying to impress God as we do into trying to impress people, we would be on the right track and find our congruence and our satisfaction and our fulfillment. And we can just finally relax and rest in God and let him work through us. Would you bow your heads as I close? Maybe you're tired of projecting someone that you're not. Maybe you just don't know if you can risk being authentic and real and letting people see the real you. Maybe you've hidden your anxieties and fears for a long time and you're tired. Maybe this is the day that Christ could set you free. You could say, I'm tired of being someone that I'm not. I want to be real. I want you Jesus, to live through me. I want you to have full control of my life, my heart, my thoughts, my soul, my spirit. God, I give it all to you. I want congruence. I want alignment. I want to be set free to be who you created me to be. We have a time of prayer at the front if you wanted to come and pray. Just ask God, I need you to help me be what you want me to be. I don't even know where to start. Father God, thank you for this day, for your word, for Paul's instruction, for a chance to reflect and see where it is we need to be realigned in our life, where you need to put your, the plumb line of your word in front of us and say it's time to, to get back on track. Let me help that happen, Jesus says. Spirit of God, fill our heart, guide us into your presence. Let us do what you're asking us to do and... Uh, let us be free today. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.